Hi, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we review animals. Where we take your favorite animals and give them a rating out of 10 in three categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. That's correct. And while Christian and I ourselves are not zoological experts, we do a lot of research for the show and make sure that we're giving you really good information from trustworthy sources. And just a heads up, I'm a little under the weather right now, so if I sound a little froggy, that's why. We're not talking about frogs this week, though. <laughs> True. You get a little more of that bass rumble in your voice. Yeah, this is this one goes out to all the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> you should have a podcast that you only do when you're sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call it Sick Beats. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't have any announcements for this week other than I have done a couple of guest spots on a couple of other podcasts out there. So if you just can't get enough of the dulcet tones of my voice, you can find me on, I believe it's this week's episode, of this podcast called the Perfect Package Podcast, where they compose uh, five components of like the perfect thing like they've done that one that was like the perfect beach day or the perfect like movie night stuff like that and so mine was your your perfect personal zoo so i was on there with them talking about animals it's a really fun episode to do and i believe that's going up this week so you can hear me on their show and also i talked about puppy on a podcast called the daily dog so if you want to hear me talk about our beagle you can hear me do that on the the Daily Dog podcast. I bet I can guess a part of the zoo. Oh, yeah? Tigers. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did talk about the tigers. And I did not listen to you recording. So. No, you didn't. You were in the living room <laughs> playing video games, so you did not have a sneak preview at that particular episode. All right, babe. I believe you're up first this week. What have you got for us? I am. So this week, I'm talking about Kirk's dick dick. What was that first part? Kirk's. Kirk's. Like the name Kirk. K-I-R-K. As in the captain. Ah. Yes. And the second part? Dick dick. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Scientific name. Madokwa Kirky? It's it's two eyes. Okay, so obviously named after the person. Okay. Yeah, named after this person, Kirk. So this species was originally requested by Megan Inez Clark. Thank you, Megan. And then it was confirmed via social media poll. Uh, we mentioned a few episodes ago that we're starting to select our species Uh, One of our species for each week will be selected via social media poll, which goes up on our Twitter account as well as in our Facebook group. And this was what y'all chose this week. Are you sure? There were no other options. Hmm. There was nothing else available to choose from, and everything went (laughs) totally smoothly and accordingly to plan. That's probably right. Yes. Don't look into it. (laughs) But also, if you're not uh, in our Facebook group, definitely get in there because it's 
<laughs> fun for someone. <laughs> it's a lot for me. <laughs> so I'm getting my information on this animal from National Geographic and, of course, my personal favorite, the University of Michigan's Animal Diversity Web. Good one. Yes. So if you are unfamiliar with this animal, the dick dick, this is an antelope. Oh. But it's very small. This is teeny. They are up to 18 inches tall and a maximum of 15 pounds or 45 centimeters tall and seven kilograms. That's that's tiny. That's like puppy sized. Oh, that's like the size of our dog. <laughs> Not to size shame this animal or anything. It's a, it's a wow. So yes, it's a very tiny antelope. It's very little. You can find them in eastern and southwestern Africa in grasslands, like open plains and stuff like that. Their taxonomic family is Bovidae. This is the family that includes cows, okay, as well as buffalo, sheep, goats, and other antelopes. So the dictic is a type of antelope, but it's actually not the smallest species of antelope. Oh? Yes, so that title goes to the royal antelope with the scientific name Neotragus pygmaeus. Mm. Which is in the same genus as the dictic, actually. Okay. But it's they're just a little bit smaller. So they're not quite the smallest antelope, but they're definitely up there in the teeny rankings. Maybe a close second place. Yeah. It's like a little, uh, it's like an antelope fairy. Oh, Yeah, it's really, really cute. So to get into my ratings for this animal, I'll start with effectiveness. And for our ratings, we define effectiveness as physical adaptations that an animal has that allow it to do a good job of the things that it is trying to do. So I give the dick dick an eight out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. Guess what? We're doing water efficiency again. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're back to this because I just can't stay away from those desert mammals. So, Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought like capybara type water efficiency, like swimming and stuff. Oh, okay. no. No, not that. I mean like water retention. That makes more efficiency. sense. I was going to be very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're doing water retention. We're doing water efficiency again. Because I just can't get enough. Sure. So the Dictic live in arid grasslands where there isn't always water available. But unlike the kangaroo rat, which we talked about last week, the Dictic does eat mostly leaves and shrubs, which are live plants that store water inside of their leaves and stuff. So it's getting water from that. So not quite the same as the kangaroo rat, which had like crazy kidney stuff going mm -hmm. on. This is a little bit more straightforward where it's just getting the water straight out of the food that it eats. Sure. And the dictic can go for months without drinking water because it's getting a lot from its diet. Makes sense. Yeah. So before moving on from the diet, I want to take a quick second to talk about how it shares grasslands with other herbivores, because I don't think we've talked about this yet. So you might be inclined to assume that different species of herbivores in the grasslands might be competing against each other for the plants that they're eating. But not every species eats the same plants. Good. So when you hear an herbivore there's different types of herbivores in there, right? There's like folivores that eat a lot of leaves or maybe one eats a lot of grass or maybe mm -hmm. one eats roots, stuff like that. So they, they're a little bit more specialized than just being like, oh, they eat plants, right? Sure, sure. 
So the dictic eats mostly leaves and shrubs, but it's much, much, much smaller than other animals in its range that also eat leaves and shrubs. So like the kudu, for example, mm-hmm. is another animal that lives in the same place it does and eats the same things. But the kudu is enormous. Right. It's huge. So the dictic is much, much smaller and it's close to the ground. So they're little enough to get up underneath and get at all of the little juicy leaves that are below the kudu's browsing level. That makes sense. Yeah. So they're both in the same area eating the same food, but they're not necessarily in direct competition with each other because they're at eye level with different parts of the plant. Like the big one would have to go like almost close to the ground to get at it. You'd have to be like laying down fully on the ground. So, but the, but the little one is able to get down under there. So I just thought that was interesting because I hadn't really thought about that before, right? When you have a grassland that's largely supporting thousands and thousands of animals that all eat plants, I had never really thought about them broken down into specialties like that. Like heights and also yeah. types. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than just like herbivores that yeah. eat plants. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. For sure. So something that you will notice about the dictic when you see it is that their snout is noticeably long and pointy. It's a long, pointy, narrow nose. Have you seen this? I think so. Does it kind of look like a reindeer? Uh, I don't think so. So it opens up in these slits at the front in a way that makes it a little bit like a trunk almost. It's actually a, it's called a proboscis. Okay. But it's, it looks a little bit like if you took an elephant's, uh, trunk and just reeled it all the way in <laughs> to where it didn't extend very far past the mouth. Interesting. Yeah. So their nasal cavity is enlarged to allow evaporation from the mucous membrane that cools off their blood. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like blood in their head is being cooled off by the evaporation in their nasal cavity. That makes sense. So this that's meant to cool and not necessarily retain water because that uses water to cool down. Yeah, but that's keeping their body from overheating. Yeah. Which is important because they live in a part of the world that is very hot. Makes sense. But another way that they have adapted to the heat where they live is that their activity is described as crepuscular. Do you know this word? No, I don't. Crepuscular. This is an alternative to nocturnal or diurnal crepuscular means that they are active during twilight hours so either early 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 in the morning or later in the evening when it's not quite nighttime but it's not quite daytime either interesting yeah so they have these really really big eyes that can take in a lot of light so that they can see in these lower light settings and also being active during these hours lets them stay out of the intense heat so they're not necessarily facing, you know, direct harsh beating sunlight. It's, right. it's not as hot during the times of the day when they're active. So the male dictics have horns, but the horns are really small. <laughs> they're, they're little pointy horns sure. that just stick straight up by the back of the head and the females don't have them. And I... Like, I wanted to give them something for that, but they, they're not very useful. They're not good for, like, fighting off predators or anything like that because they're so, like, short. They're not super useful. Makes sense. They're there, but it's one of those things where it's more for fighting each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's more for territorial disputes between themselves than for protecting themselves from a predator. So I was like, mm. Probably the cutest territorial dispute to have ever been seen. <laughs> 
So, like a lot of animals do, they use their bodily fluids to mark their territory with their scent. Mm -hmm. But something that's interesting about the dick-dick is that their scent marking comes from a fluid that's produced in the corners of their eyes. Okay. So, when they're marking their territory, they're just rubbing their eyes on stuff. So, are these, like, glands that are just in that area, or are these tears, or...? It's fluid that comes from a gland. Okay. Located at the front of the eye. Okay, okay. It's not a tear, because they're not coming from the tear ducts. It's like a a smelly, sticky fluid that comes out of their eyes. Okay. So, (laughs) they have to, like, be rubbing their eyes on stuff to mark it, which I think is not (laughs) very intuitive, right? I bet it would look a lot like what cats do, right? How they're rubbing their face on stuff. Yeah. It just seems to me like you should be able to mark your territory without having to rub your face on stuff. Because what if it's like a prickly cactus or like (laughs) something like a thorny bush or something like that? You're going to have to rub your face on it. I guess it tests how much you want to own that cactus. How important is this shrub to you? Are you going to rub your eyeball on it? (laughs) Take cactus, get face full of needles. (laughs) Weighing the options. What is the trade-off here? Is this coming to its ingenuity score? No. This is something (laughs) funny. I thought it was. But you know what you could say? Hmm. You could say that they're really keeping an eye on their territory. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Got him! Is that in your notes? Yeah. Let me see them. Yeah, it's right here in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I came up with that pun like four days ago. Okay, good. I've been marinating that one for a while. <laughs> that one's been that one's been slow cooking. Love it. <laughs> this brings me to our next category for the dick dick. This is ingenuity. And if you're new to the show, we describe ingenuity as behavioral adaptations that give the animal advantages in its whole situation. So I gave the dick dick a seven out of ten for ingenuity. Their funky nose that I mentioned earlier also Mm -hmm. has an important use other than cooling their body down. They use it as a whistle. Really? Yes. (laughs) So the noise that they make when they detect a threat, they sound this alarm by making a whistling noise with their nose. Can you imitate it? You know me well (laughs) enough to know that I cannot. It's like... No, I can't do it. <laughs> okay. I will drop a sound bite in here. Wee woo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you'll do that, but you won't make a koala sound. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. What a double standard. <laughs> but it's thought that this might be where their name came from. That that sound that they make, the whistling sound that they make, kind of sounds like it was originally written as zik zik. Oh, it it got translated, unfortunately, into dick dick. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so another thing that they do is when they're startled, they run in a zigzag pattern to lose their pursuer, which is great and cool and all. But you know what? It doesn't help them against what's that? Birds. Womp. <laughs> <laughs> It's it it might help you lose, you know, like a a cheetah or a lion or something that maybe can't make those sharp turns so quickly. Mm-hmm. But an eagle does not care <laughs> how quickly you zig or zag. True. So, that I couldn't give it too much for that, but I did think it was an interesting little like strategy of zigzagging. That's what they tell you to do for gators, right? But as we talked about it all the way back in our first episode, 
you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You can just run so, and you'll be fine. Ah, this Roomba is coming after me. <laughs> I better zigzag. <laughs> that's it's like that's great and all, but you're doing the most. <laughs> so another thing that they do when they're escaping predators is that they try to hide by lowering themselves to the ground underneath tall grass and they just freeze. And they just wait completely motionless and hope that their predator <laughs> loses track of them, I guess. Don't baby deer, like forest deer, do something similar to that? Where they will like lay down. Their mother will leave them somewhere and yeah. they'll just lay there completely still until she comes back. Yeah. This is like the dick dick will like do this in response to being chased by something. Okay. Yeah. So they'll they'll run, 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 and they'll find like tall grass or a shrub or something to hide in. And they'll hide there and then they'll just stand completely still. Mm. Yeah. So this is a pretty good strategy for them because it's letting them use their really tiny size to their advantage. I figured that since they're so little, their legs aren't that long, so they're not going to be able to cover a lot of ground very quickly. So they're relying on taking advantage of cover rather than gaining ground between them and their predator because they got really little legs. Right? Yeah. So this is, I thought this was a good way of using your environment to your advantage and, and finding cover rather than trying to just gain distance. Hmm. I thought that was a good strategy for them. Yeah. These are just some pretty decent evasive strategies, but otherwise they have no real defense mechanisms. So they're pretty much popcorn for large predators in the area where they live. So they are preyed on by big cats, hyenas, crocodiles, monitor lizards, pythons, jackals, and eagles. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) They're just like an easy snack for all of those. I was kind of hoping there was a version of the lion that was proportionally small to this type of antelope a pocket lion (laughs) there are some really cute little have you seen the videos of the really tiny little african uh cats gosh what are they called gosh they're cute is this different from the fusa the fossa lives in madagascar yeah and also i don't think is a cat what i don't think it's a cat the movie lied to me Anyway, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about for their ingenuity is that dictics live in permanently monogamous pairs. Okay. So rather than how we've talked about some other animals before, how they'll mate for like a season or maybe like a couple of seasons in a row, and then they'll move on to find a different partner, mm-hmm. the dictics will pair up and they're together permanently. Okay. So they will live, rather than other types of antelopes or deer or anything like that that prefer to live in a herd and find strength in numbers, they will pair up and kind of live in a territory together with their mate. And they, the female gives birth to only one baby at a time. Oh. Yeah. So this sounds very kind of in line with what you think of when you think of a traditional nuclear family model. Until you hear that once the babies reach their full size at the ripe old age of seven months, (laughs) the parent forces the young out of their territory by chasing them out. All right. Just time to go. You got to leave the nest sometime. And then usually (laughs) the female gets pregnant immediately after that. Well, yeah. (laughs) All right, honey, you've done great. You're seven (laughs) months old now. Mommy and daddy need some time together. (laughs) Be gone with you. And they chase their baby out. All right. Which I think is like not the best parenting move, but it's better than the quokka. So we have a baseline there. 
So this brings me to the final category for the dictic aesthetics, which is pretty self-explanatory. I think this speaks for itself, just how visually appealing the animal is. I give this one a 7 out of 10. They're pretty cute. They're very small. They have the tiniest feet. Oh my goodness. They got tiny little hooves. They're (laughs) so little. It's like they're running around on little toothpicks. (laughs) They're so cute. And they have those big, round, adorable eyes because they're nocturnal. Yeah. And it makes them look like baby. They're just baby. <laughs> and baby. Forever. They're, for, they're forever a baby. Aww. While I was looking at pictures of them, I had a really hard time telling whether I was looking at an adult or a baby. Because they, <laughs> they look like a baby forever. They're so cute. I deducted some points because their nose is weird and I don't love that. <laughs> It's my show. I do what I want. It's Seven valid. out of ten. <laughs> so this brings us to miscellaneous information for the dictic. Their conservation status is of least concern. Cool. They are hunted for their pelts, which are used to make gloves. Now, here's the kicker. It <laughs> takes the whole animal's pelt to make one glove. That makes sense. <laughs> it takes two of these to make a pair of gloves. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they're not the most efficient. They're little. They're so little. However, so so hunters that are hunting them for their pelts to make gloves, obviously, you know, like to have them around. However, hunters of larger game actually find the dictic pretty troublesome because its alarm whistle scares off their targets. Oh. So if a dictic like sees a hunter coming up, they'll sound their little whistle and then all the other big game will scatter because the Dick has kind of warned them of the danger. So they don't love that. <laughs> it's not the greatest for the hunter. And they're like, you know what I need? A pair of Dick Dick gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really it. That's all I had. For I like the, it. That's all I had for the Dick Dick. This was a pretty cute little animal. I didn't know very much about them. And I feel like I didn't know very much about antelopes in general. And now that I think of it, this is the first antelope we've talked about. That's and true. They're, and they're pretty unusual, I think, for an antelope, right? Because they don't live in a herd. They're nocturnal. They're very teeny. I feel like they're kind of an unusual antelope. True. Because like the, the other ones are usually, I don't know, approaching horse size sometimes. You know? Yeah. You'll see some... You'll see some types of antelope that are, yeah, like the size of a horse or a cow or something yeah. like that. So most of them are much, much bigger, whereas this one is the size of, like, my dog. <laughs> it's very little. This is good, good small friend. Hmm. I had a lot of fun talking about it. And if you want to see for yourself what they look like, you can look up Dick Dick Pick Picks. <laughs> is that also in your notes? No, I can't wait for that one just now. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, thank you, honey. You're welcome. I'd like to quickly thank the following patrons from our Patreon. Jacob Jones, Brianna Feinberg, The Jungle Gym Queen, Ashley Tucker, and Christina Sanders. Thanks, y'all. All right, sweetheart. It's all you. All right. So Base my- is loaded. Yeah. <laughs> so the animal I have for this week was not chosen by Facebook poll. It was chosen by me throwing a figurative dart at our species list. <laughs> <laughs> and I chose the Bobbit worm. This was not random. There's no way this was randomly selected. <laughs> I might have biased it. <clears throat> 
So you've got this, right? I don't have to actually be here for this part of the episode, right? <laughs> no. You can just take it from here. I don't actually have to hear this. No, right? your your reaction is the other half of what the what the audience <laughs> craves. So bobbitworm, scientific name Eunice Aphroditoes. So this species was submitted to us by Michael Solon, Nicholas Kite, and Miranda Lowry. And I'll be getting my information for this species from a Kyoto University paper titled An Extraordinarily Large Specimen of the Polychyte Worm Eunice Aphroditoes Palace, or Eunicea from Shirahama, Wakayama, Central Japan. Authors Uchida Hiroomi, Tanase Hidetoma, and Kuboto Shin. That's that's Mr. Immortal Jellyfish Man. Are you sure? That's him, Shin Kubota. That's hmm. that's Mr. Immortal Jellyfish Man. <laughs> it makes sense, I suppose. Wow. <laughs> what a callback. <laughs> that's interesting. Fantastic. And then my second source of information is coming from arcreef.com, arcreef.com, and that ARC is an acronym for Atlantic Reef Conservation. Excellent. It is a website that sells live rocks and live sands for consumer saltwater aquariums. Great. So let's talk about what this little dude is. It is a segmented worm that lives in the ocean. Loving it already. (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of people have seen this on the internet in recent years. Why would they have seen it? So they're a little infamous and how they act in the wild and also when they are accidentally brought into private aquarium collections don't like that thing (laughs) don't like that thing so let me describe what they look like a little bit it's a big long segmented worm uh, with powerful mandibles at the mouth end the business end of things as mandibles tend to be yes (laughs) (laughs) and they are a bit of a iridescent color really yes if you can see their body but i'll touch more on that later oh sneaky boy (laughs) Let's talk about how big they are. Uh, So they're adult size. The ones from Japan, at least, most are around one meter long or 3.3 feet. Bad numbers. With the larger of them being around two meters, usually, or 6.6 feet long. 6.6 feet long. Now, the subject of that paper that I cited before uh, was about a particular specimen found in a raft of sorts that was used for raising fish it was found in one of the like the the buoyancy barrels uh this particular specimen was 299 centimeters long or 9.8 feet and it weighed 433 grams which is just under a pound oh yeah weird right that is strange (laughs) must be skinny right yeah the max width of its body was 25 millimeters which is just under an inch that makes me feel better (laughs) That okay, you should have led with that. Okay, that should have been at the top of this piece of information. You had me so shook. <laughs> sea monster. I was, you know, what I was thinking of huh. the Alaskan bullworm. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it consisted of 673 segments. 673 yes. segments. Each of those segments have a pair of what you might call legs. Oh, my God. Yes. What? <laughs> it's a worm. It's not supposed to have legs. It's not really legs. They're, uh, uh, I forgot to note down what their scientific name is, but it helps them move, is basically. Is it like Cirri? Something like that. I don't remember. Sorry. 
So yeah, this this paper was about an unusually large one that they found in the mid 2000s. Where these guys can be found, uh, they're distributed all over the warmer marine areas of the world. You can find them in the pits of hell. <laughs> <laughs> they belong to the taxonomic family uh, Unicidae. Notable relatives are other bristle worms. So bristle worms having these little uh, leg-like structures on their segments. Okay. Yes. Before I get into our main categories, I'm going to talk about its common name origin. Great. (laughs) Regale me. So its common name being bobbit worm. This is from a notable case, I guess criminal case, from the United States in the 90s. Meaning the person that named this named it after this case. <laughs> sure. It's namesake. Yes. Uh, so the case I'm talking about was between John and Lorena Bobbitt. They were a married couple. And as the story goes, many acts of domestic abuse committed by the husband led to the wife in 1993 snapping and with a kitchen knife severing an organ that is essential to reproduction off of the husband, John. The husband was acquitted of charges relating to the domestic abuse, and the wife, Lorena, was found not guilty due to insanity. I mean, that's what the lawyers would have had to go with, right? (laughs) (laughs) So that act of the severing of the organ, I guess, is what the person that discovered the species was going for, because one of the things that the bobbit worm does is... Nope, Mm-mm. No, I'm no, gonna I'm not, gonna stop you right there. No, 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 it's not so bad. It has those strong mandibles, and when it catches prey with them, I don't like where you're going with it. It snaps them in half. The whole thing. Yeah, if it's a small enough fish, it'll get snapped in half with the mandibles. They're not selective about where or what they snap. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking the person the, the person that came up with this name just saw the general shape of the animal. And then I guess okay. the act of severing, I don't know. Okay. It was a bit of a stretch. I'm betting this happened around the same time that the case was happening. It and was in the fresh news, on the brain. I'm betting. Yeah. Because <laughs> prior to this, I had never even heard of that case. Yeah, me neither. But then again, I would have been a very, very young child when it happened. When did this happen? Uh, 93. Oh. <laughs> I was not born. Womp womp. <laughs> That's where the common name comes from. Delightful. And another note about that common name, uh, that common name is sometimes attributed to many of the 300 plus species within the Eunus genus. So it can be a little bit difficult sometimes getting the facts specific to that one species or some of the other species that are in the genus. Sure. Now, I will move on to effectiveness. Yeah. How good is it at snapping dudes in half? <laughs> I gave it a 7 out of 10. So first up, burrowing. It's normally under sand and mud and sediment and that sort of thing. Good strat. Where its mouth bits are just sitting at the surface of the sediment with little feelers to sense when something is very, very close. When something does wander into its death trap, it will spring forward, snapping at it with its strong, strong mandibles and retracting what is left into the dirt. So, you know how when we go to the beach, yes. and you're always trying to get me to walk in the water? <laughs> this is the exact thing. <laughs> this is my exact phobia. This is the exact reason why I do not walk in the ocean. This would not be anywhere near where you or I would be walking in the ocean. Now, my my thinking brain 
is aware of that <laughs> and understands that as a fact, but just knowing that it's out there yeah. really makes walking in the ocean not an option for me. <laughs> so yeah, it burrows. The second thing I'm giving for effectiveness is venom. What? Yep. No. It was already <laughs> So horrifying. assuming it was not able to snap whatever it was in half. <laughs> that wasn't enough? <laughs> well, it, it's not always going to be doing that, right? I feel like if you survived that, you've earned your life. <laughs> well, what I mean is it'll be prey that does not get snapped in half by the by the initial bite. Right. So after that, with the bite, I should say, it delivers uh, venom that either stuns or kills the prey. So there's that. This is a, a tried <laughs> and true all around DPS, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. It is also an omnivore. Sure. So it will it will eat live prey, of course, but it will also feed on detritus, that sort of thing. Just sure. plant matter in general. And the final point that I had already mentioned prior was its strong mandibles that can split smaller prey in half. I thought that was pretty neat. That is <laughs> neat, I guess, is a word <laughs> that you could say with your mouth <laughs> for ingenuity i'm just gonna give it a five out of ten because the only thing i can really give it points for is being an ambush predator like i mentioned it'll wait until something gets near it grabs them with the strong mandibles injects it with venom and then pulls them into the sediment yeah i think that's a good strategy yeah right it's tried and true it's yep so uh it'll only really reveal itself as it's attacking and then pulls its prey into a safe place for it to consume. Uh, that's pretty clever, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only thing I could really give it in terms of ingenuity. And then final, aesthetics, 5 out of 10. Really? Yeah. Re- are, we, <laughs> are we firm on that? I mean... Have we really locked that in? So some of the aesthetics I'm, I'm pointing out are this idea of segments. A little, a little troubling, right? Um, a little. <laughs> so like many segmented worms, each segment can extend and retract. What? So the overall length of the animal can change, right? It's an accordion <laughs> yeah, of yeah. pain and death. Well, <laughs> you can see this with earthworms, right? This is Satan's accordion. <laughs> um, and of course, the jaws, very, very strong. And then finally, the iridescent coloration, which again, you would only see when it's out of the ground. So a little bit of miscellaneous information. I don't have any information in terms of conservation. I assume no one's bothered. I'm not worried about them. (laughs) And that kind of makes sense because the general information on them is a little sparse as compared to other animals. They reproduce through what is called spawning, where the female will let out a pheromone to let a male find them. And then they will each... So the female will just throw out the eggs into the water, and then the male will throw out the sperm into the water... And then they will fertilize. And, <laughs> and they just wish for the best. Yes, basically. <laughs> this is common for fish, right? Yes. This is the way a lot of fish do it. Yes. And that's called spawning. Because uh, even they can't <laughs> bear to mate with each other. <laughs> even they are just... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that what I look like? <laughs> Earlier I mentioned their infamy. Because they find themselves in aquariums, both private and public, like the big ones. Sure. This is because a lot of times they are imported in live rock, especially the those collected from the wild and specifically the, the Indo-Pacific region of the oceans. So, yeah, they, they'll find themselves in aquariums maybe as a larva or even as a small adult. And they'll grow, get bigger, 
destroy live coral as they burrow through it mm. and then also eat the fish that are in the aquarium. So that's kind of their infamy. And kind of going back to how many, many species are called bobbit worms. Yeah. A lot of the times the the videos and stuff on the internet you'll see are not this species. Sure. Some of them are only detritivores to where they don't eat the fish that are in the tank. Oh. Yeah. Maybe you want one of those in your tank to be cleaning up, right? Maybe. I don't know. So a lot of times they'll be found as part of the cleaning, like when they're picking rocks up and stuff and like oh there's this several foot long worm in my aquarium <laughs> that would be enough to make me just immediately place the aquarium on the curb <laughs> <laughs> but if it were this particular species then yeah you would probably notice it because all your fish are going bye-bye Oh. <laughs> and maybe you might find a half of a fish or something. <laughs> you look at it, it's just like your fish has been s- just Naruto <laughs> chopped in half. <laughs> uh, and then the final thing I want to talk about is something that was interesting that other species in the genus do, but I could not confirm that this particular species does, and that is division. Mm-mm. <laughs> Bad. So what will happen is either through being injured or being attacked, their body can separate and form another being that is basically a clone of themselves. That was the thing I was hoping you weren't going to say, and I'm upset that you said it. (laughs) Because I think that that wasn't something that I had yet had a nightmare about (laughs) because my brain hadn't thought of it yet, and now it's in there, Yep, which is unfortunate. Now that's in there. As a piece of information that could be generated yes. during a dream. Yes. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. So this is common among segmented worms, it seems, because each segment has like a full set of organs and such that they just all connect to throughout their body. So when one part gets disconnected, it'll just regrow the parts that are missing. And now you have two of whatever that was. So my problem with this, <laughs> I have many, but one of my problems with this is that in D and D, when you're fighting a Hydra, yeah, and you cut the head off and the head grows back, this is similar to this, right? Like you cut. Well, it would be similar if yeah, the body grew another head, but then the head also grew a body. Yes, so it's it's like that, but worse. <laughs> but the 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 balancing mechanic for the Hydra in D and D is that if you hit it with fire damage, is it? Yeah, fire damage. Then it like cauterizes the wound and it stops growing back. Yeah, that's how many. I mean, they don't specifically say that, but that's how many accept that to to mean. Right. So my problem with the application that we're talking about of this concept is that this is not an option to fight the bobbit worm because you're underwater. I guess. guess. (laughs) (laughs) You can't use the fire damage to negate the division ability. I suppose, yeah. That's my problem. Uh, So again, I'm not sure. I could not confirm if the actual bobbit worm species can do this, but a lot of the other species that are sometimes referred to as bobbit worms can. Hmm. I thought it was something interesting to talk about. Interesting, sure. <laughs> so specifically, I found out about this by finding a YouTube video where a particularly large specimen was found, and 
as part of removing it from the aquarium into its own enclosure, it's separated into three pieces. Oh my god! All three of which were moving independently. Oh my! <laughs> wow! I hate <laughs> this show. I think, and I think one of them ended up dying or something because I, I guess it's not a perfect process. Because but... that's the world had had enough. <laughs> So, yeah, that is the Bobbit worm. How can you kill this monstrosity? <laughs> it's just an invincible creature. If I had to guess, probably climate change. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> That'll do it, won't it? Yeah. Yikes. Not to endorse climate change solely as a method for ridding the planet of Bobbit worms. I've changed my position. Oh, no. Listen, I've been super anti-climate change until now. Oh, what's that? Oh, that that's Al Gore at the front door. <laughs> you want to you want to talk to Ellen? <laughs> hey, babe. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I can't. I'm on the phone with Elon Musk, and I can't. I don't. I don't have time to talk to Al Gore right now. Tell him I'm busy. Tell him to come back later. Please launch me off this planet. Uh, <laughs> no aquariums allowed. Please eat me into the abyss. <laughs> so that's the bobbit worm. Um, interesting in person and also in namesake. Okay. <laughs> so I already am, am freaked out and not into fish in general. I'm fine with them at a respectful distance, but I don't like to be around fish or in water with fish or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really love, I, I, I have a personal policy for myself that I will never have an aquarium in my house or a place where I live. And this really sealed the deal on that. That really kind of helped me have confidence that I will not be having any All right. saltwater fish tanks. Well, for me, I would never, just because I don't want to spend the effort on it. It's a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. I have seen some saltwater fish tanks that people have made that are just so incredibly beautiful. And then what you don't expect, I think, when you're setting up a fish tank is that there ends up being like fish tank drama. <laughs> Where the fish like have their own, it's an ecosystem in there, right? But then the fish will have their own little cliques and and gangs, and and there will be drama between them and interesting relationships between the fish. Yeah, yeah, not all about it. Don't want to do things. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's a bobbit worm. Fan. Fantastic. <laughs> Listeners, if I'm not back for the next episode, uh, <laughs> you'll you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> because I've fed you to a nine foot long bobbit worm. <laughs> All right, pals, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you could just take like two seconds out of your day to head over to your podcatcher and leave us a good review and rate us on whatever it is that you're using to listen to us. I would personally love that. (laughs) I as well. It would be great. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So you can connect with us and hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search the title of the show. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us review, you can submit those to us. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. And as a reminder, we do social media polls every week where we decide the next animal. So, you know, follow us on Twitter or get in our Facebook group so that you can take part in that. A transcript of this episode and the others will be up 
at www.justthezooofus.com. And finally, I'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides as our theme music. Yes, very much enjoyed it as being the theme to our adventure. <laughs> yeah, it's been really nice. <laughs> it's been a good adventure so far. Yes. It's only getting better. Woo. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.